Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, for the next four weeks, we're beginning a very special series called Easter, according to the Gospel of John. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 18, verses 1 to 2, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Suffering and Vindication. I have, I fear, been fighting a losing battle for many years now. See, I've observed that during my lifetime living in North America, the evangelical church has made Christmas the highlight of the year. Pentecost has passed into nothing, not celebrated at all. And as for Easter, I have noticed many evangelical churches have but one week of a very subdued celebration. Some churches no longer celebrate Palm Sunday. Still others only have an Easter Sunday. That's it. In comparison, Christmas takes up a month of our celebration. You'd have to forgive the outsider for concluding that it's the birth of Jesus and not his death and resurrection that captures the imagination of the contemporary church. But historically, that was not so. In order to celebrate Easter and the events of Easter, a tradition emerged in the church. It happened shortly after the Council of Nicaea in 325, and it was a 40-day period of preparation before Easter. It was called Lent. Now, the word simply means 40. It would always begin on a Wednesday, and that Wednesday would be called Ash Wednesday. And the idea came from an Old Testament practice in which a sign of repentance was to repent in sackcloth and ashes. And so in order to signal the beginning of the Easter season, Ash Wednesday was a call for self-examination of repentance of all known sin and the practice of self-denial. It was to be remembered that Jesus had died for our sins and that his one sacrifice for our sins demanded of us both faith and repentance. And then the 40-day preparation for Easter was to be a time of great seriousness, one of fasting and putting aside of all things that were displeasing to Christ. But it was also a time of great joy. God's people were called upon to daily remember the atoning substitutional death of our Lord for our sins, as well as his glorious resurrection and the hope of our own resurrection. Well, whether or not you agree with the period of celebrating Lent or not, I would hope that you would agree that we need to recapture the glory of the cross and of the resurrection and of the need to celebrate. So for the next four weeks, I want us to consider John chapters 18 to 21. Let's let John, an eyewitness to the sufferings and resurrection of our Lord, tell us the account. Today, let's introduce the series, and I'm reading John 18, 1 to 2. It simply says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. The words that are referred to in chapter 18, that is, when Jesus had spoken these words, I mean, those words were all the words that Christ spoke in the upper room. So they included the words of Passover, when he announced that the Passover bread was his body, the cup was his blood poured out for them. They would have included his words that one of them would betray him. They included his high priestly prayer in which they watched as he poured out his soul to God for his disciples. And they included his startling words that before the night was over, all of them would desert him. He quoted Zechariah 13, verse 7, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And with those words said, he invites them to follow. They leave the upper room and went out of the city, going down the steep hill into the Kidron Valley. Our text says they crossed the brook Kidron. 
It's a dry stream bed at the bottom of a very steep descent, which runs with water in the wintertime. It's an intermittent stream. Then they climbed up the steep embankment on the other side, on the eastern side, and it's the Mount of Olives, a hillside known for its olive groves. The garden that we know Jesus went to is called Gethsemane, which means the olive press. That was the place where olives were crushed. And there are great moments in history where a bit of ground, a, a bit of geography, represents the turning point in history. You know, when Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon in 49 BC, that was such a time. Roman law forbade any general from crossing the Rubicon with a standing army, for to do so would threaten the government of Rome. So crossing the Rubicon with an army, well, that was considered an act of treason. When Caesar crossed, the die was cast. He would either be executed for this act or triumph over the Senate and then change history. Well, Jesus crossing the Kidron is just such a moment. The moment he crossed over, the die was cast, and the events that would lead to the cross would now move to their inevitable conclusion. And you might argue, well, wasn't the die cast before that? I mean, when he entered Jerusalem during Passover and, you know, the crowds were laying down palm branches and shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is roughly equivalent to them shouting, hail to King Jesus, the King of Israel. I mean, wasn't the die cast then? Weren't his enemies now bound to oppose him to death? Or when he knocked over the money changers' tables, calling the temple not God's house, but rather my house? I mean, weren't words this strong going to lay the groundwork for crucifixion? Yes, but perhaps there was another possibility for Jesus. See, many of us, when we think of the Kidron Valley, well, we might remember this is the historic valley that David crossed. It's mentioned in 2 Samuel 15. You know, at that time, David's son Absalom led a conspiracy against his father until one of David's servants had come to him to tell him that the hearts of the men of Israel had gone after Absalom. And so David, realizing his life is in danger, flees from Absalom. He crosses over the Kidron Valley. So Jesus, king of Israel, also crosses the Kidron like King David. Both of them are chased by their enemy, but that's where the similarity ends. Look again at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, and there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now, most commentators are in agreement that the use of the word entered, well, that means that the garden was likely an enclosure walled about by a stone fence. David, on the other hand, remained in the open country, not wanting to make the mistake of being easily captured. And then again, verse 2, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. See, the last thing one wants to do when you're a fugitive is to be predictable, going about your routine as you always did. And here we see Jesus entering a walled enclosure in Gethsemane, where Judas had seen him go repeatedly. See, the difference between David and Jesus now becomes clear. David crossed the Kidron to escape his enemies. Jesus crossed it in order to be captured by his enemies. His steps were deliberate. He was looking for the very outcome that he got. And what we're going to notice is that Jesus orchestrated and directed and controlled these events. That's what he already told his disciples. I mean, we see it in Matthew 20, verse 18. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And his journey to Jerusalem is a statement that he had deliberately chosen to suffer. That was his intention. 
He was placing himself in the exact position where he would be found and crucified during Passover so that he would become our Passover lamb. And in the next hours, a scene would play out very quickly. And if this were a movie and you were to give what transpires next a rating, well, these events would be rated R for graphic violence. And the reason I say that is the tendency we have to jump to the conclusion too quickly. You know, we simply say that Jesus died for our sins and we rejoice in that without really staring into the face of ugly and brutal and atrocious suffering. And I say that because I have a memory of showing the Jesus film to my two daughters when they were quite young. And Sarah, our younger daughter, was so deeply disturbed by what she saw. And when it came to the cross especially, both Kathy and I realized that we should not have let her see that at such a young age. I remember her coming to our bed It was night and her face was red from crying and she couldn't sleep. And she said, Daddy, why did they do that to Jesus? See, there is a time in our lives when we're old enough to be exposed, well, to the brutality of the sufferings of Jesus. And it should appall all of us. It should deeply disturb us. We should not want this scene to pass too quickly. Instead, we should allow it to go on and on as it does in the book of John. And so I say, if it were a movie, it would really have to receive a warning for graphic violence. And yet, it is necessary for us to stare at the violence of the sufferings of our Lord. It is necessary, for if we do not do it, if we turn away from it, for it's shocking and it's ugly, and if we do that, we will never see what our sins demand, what our sins deserve, and what great love there is for us in the sufferings of Christ. For Jesus really did suffer for us. So I beg you, do not turn away. During this Easter season, face the sufferings of Christ straight on. Let it impact your soul. Even though it disturbs you, meditate on these things so that you might understand the great love of Christ for us who are lost and in sin. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. We believe Bible teaching is critical for God's people, and your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Neufeld available on this station. But we know there's times when you may miss the radio program, so we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series, both audio and video with Dr. John, but also learn more about our ministry podcasts, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our desire is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust is available to as many people in as many ways as possible. For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. In order to understand these events, let's just remember the background. The action begins on Thursday afternoon. Probably from about 3 to 5 that afternoon, Jesus would have sent two of his disciples to the temple to slaughter the Passover lamb as it was the custom for some out of each family to slaughter the lamb for the entire family. In the time of Jesus, men representing their family or group would be allowed to go into the temple courts 
Each man, not the priest, would slaughter his own lamb while the event was announced by priests who would be blowing trumpets. Priests stood in rows between the court where the lambs were slaughtered and the altar holding silver and gold bowls. The first priest in each row would catch the blood of the lamb whose throat was being slit and then pass the bowl now filled with blood to the next priest and then on down the row. At the same time, they would be passing up empty bowls so that they were constantly interchanging blood-filled bowls with empty bowls. The last priest next to the altar would then throw the sacrificial blood against the base of the altar. Now, how many lambs would be slaughtered? Now, if you believe the Jewish historian Josephus, well, he was born shortly after the time of Jesus. Well, Josephus claims that at one time, more than a quarter million lambs were slain, and hence, there was an immense amount of blood running like a river from the altar. Where did all that blood go? Well, according to Kent Hughes, a drain ran down from the temple altar down into the Kidron Valley, which was, as we have seen, a dry river bank. You know, it carried water mainly in January. So when Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley on Thursday night, it would have been running red with blood. And no doubt, you know, they got their blood on their feet, as this already set the stage for the horror that was about to unfold. And what follows next are five separate scenes. Scene one has Jesus in Gethsemane, and there he waits the arrival of Judas and soldiers with him. And while he waits, he prays and drops of blood are pouring out from his forehead. Such is the stress that this has on his life. And Judas finally enters and Peter draws his sword and Jesus is taken away. Scene two is what we would call the Jewish trial, the highly illegal procedure. None of the Jews understood how quickly they would catch Jesus. And well, they were caught completely off guard and, and realized they must execute Jesus now before the Sabbath. And so they call a hasty trial, and it takes a little while to arrange things. So in phase one of the Jewish trial, they drag Jesus before a man named Annas. He's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. And Annas quickly determines that the charges against Jesus are sufficient to warrant an official trial. Then in phase two of the Jewish trial, Jesus is dragged in the night before the high priest. And here's where it becomes violent. They're striking him with fists during the trial, trying to soften him up. Meanwhile, Peter is outside denying him. Then in phase three of the Jewish trial, they have now had enough time to call the full Sanhedrin together to, to quickly trump up charges and bring him to Rome so that the Romans can quickly execute him. Friday morning breaks and the Jewish leaders are ready. Scene three is now the Roman section of the trial. In the first phase here, Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate, and it's a zoo. The city is waking up to turmoil. Pilate questions Jesus, and he finds him undeserving of death, and he's ready to release him, but finds that this is so contentious, he fears a wider riot would begin. And realizing that Jesus is a Galilean, he sends him over to Herod. And Herod, well, he couldn't be happier. He had wanted to meet Jesus for some time, and from that day on, Pilate and Herod become friends. You know, 2,000 years later, you can go to the, the Jewish city of Caesarea, where Herod had a beautiful palace built right on the Mediterranean Sea with its, with its own harbor. It was a massive aqueduct bringing water. It must have been a thing of splendor in its day. There at that place, outside of Herod's palace, archaeologists have found a stone engraved with the name Pilotus. It was this trial 
that had made these two men friends. But Herod, while delighted with Pilate, is disappointed with Jesus. You see, Herod wanted Jesus to do a miracle. You know, it's way better than the circus coming to town. But Jesus won't play his game. Jesus won't even say a thing. And in disgust, Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. Now the trial is in earnest. And by now, there is a crowd in a frenzy wanting Jesus to be crucified. And Pilate decides to pit Jesus up against Barabbas. Surely the people will choose Jesus, but his plan backfires. And Pilate's now in a corner, and his wife appeals to him. I had a dream last night, she says, have nothing to do with harming this man. But Pilate is afraid that the city may riot, and what then will Rome say of his governance? And so he washes his hands and hands Jesus over to his soldiers. Three scenes, Gethsemane, the Jewish trial, the Roman trial, now comes scene four. This is one of public humiliation of Jesus. The Roman soldiers scourge him with whips made of leather laced with hooks and pieces of bone. And with each stripe, skin and flesh would fly into the air, reducing his back to a piece of lacerated and ripped and bloodied flesh. Then a crown of thorns jammed into his head, into his skull. Many men would never have survived this and Then, of course, finally, they set him through Jerusalem carrying his own cross, in which he is spit upon and mocked by a howling mob. And finally, Simon of Cyrene is drafted to carry his cross, for he's been so abused and the blood loss is so severe that he may die before the crucifixion, and by now, they want to torture him further. It is at this moment that Jesus says some of the most chilling words. In Luke 23, 28 and 31, But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? And then comes the final scene, the crucifixion, which can itself be divided into two halves, the first three hours and then the last three. But for six brutal hours, Christ suffers. The worst form of capital punishment ever devised by man, a form of capital punishment specifically designed to keep the victim alive as long as possible before death mercifully comes. See, there is no doubt that the events are cruel with a level of violence I think that even Mel Gibson's film didn't properly display. But why does the Bible give us so much information? Why isn't it simply enough to say, you know, Jesus died for our sins without having to give the film an R rating for graphic violence? Why should we remain here gazing at this violence, this this bloodshed and cruelty? What are we to learn from this? Well, as we study John's description of the death of Jesus, we should learn four valuable lessons. First, that it was our Lord's suffering that brought us salvation. See, all the wonderful things that Christ's life brought us were not possible without his sufferings. The promise he makes, as recorded in John, the promise of eternal life, the promise of the Holy Spirit as our comforter, Jesus promised to return for those he loved, the promise to prepare a place for us, all the treasures of grace, of forgiveness, and of salvation were not possible without this. See, in a real way, the horror of the sufferings of Christ are to remind us of how horrible our own sin really looks before God. It reminds us that the sin question simply can't be overlooked. It's so important in a day when we're tempted to think that being spiritual and being faithful to your religion and being good and decent are simply enough. And when we hold that view, we mock the sufferings of Christ. Until we see how brutal this was, we will not fully appreciate how lost we are without Christ. There is no other way to God outside of this. 
The second lesson is that suffering is not defeat. See, I feel we need to say this because of the aversion some of us have to developing a full doctrine of suffering. In some circles, all suffering is a lack of faith. You know, if you believe in God, he'll keep you from suffering, so they say. And so they believe that sickness and financial troubles and difficulties, these are all things that Christ will take from us. And I've heard people say, why would God let me go through this with a real sense of bewilderment as if when God is for us, we should be free from these burdens. But the Easter story makes sense of suffering. And third, we should learn that suffering is not the end. For this account ends not with the ignominy of a rotting body in a tomb, but with an empty tomb and a resurrected Lord. And finally, fourth, you know, suffering and the sovereignty of God belong together. Listen to what the early church testified, Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, once we bring to our hearts this overwhelming fact, suffering is God's chosen instrument to do his will, then our restless hearts will finally be quiet in the place of suffering. Are you getting ready to follow Christ to his cross this Easter? Are you willing to embrace the cross? And are you willing to call it your highest joy? Well, that's my goal as we go through this series. Thanks for your message, John. Looking forward to the series. You know, we've had this conversation before, but what's wrong with what seems to be becoming very popular today, a sanitized, gentler version of forgiveness of our sins, rather than what seems so violent? Yeah, I mean, we know what what the Bible is all about. It tells you that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So if you're going to hear the story of forgiveness, it's going to be gory, it's going to be bloody, it's going to be filled with violence, and it's going to remind us of how deeply sinful and depraved we are. And it's going to remind us also what is required for us to be forgiven. So there is no sanitized Christianity that's genuine Christianity. You just have to get that through your head. And what the world also says, it makes little of our own sin, but in fact, the Christian gospel magnifies our sin, makes much of it, um, so that we might know also how much we have been forgiven. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Easter, according to the Gospel of John, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Every day we hear from listeners from right across the country, and your words of encouragement mean so much. Sean recently wrote, I often listen to Dr. John's Bible teaching while driving to work. It's given me great insights into God's message to his people. Back to the Bible Canada is indeed an inspiration. Well, we're so grateful for messages just like these, but they only happen because of your partnership in making Bible teaching you can trust available to as many people in as many places in as many ways as possible. One way we want to do that this month is by sending you our very new free combo CD series called Joy in Tough Times. Five messages from Dr. John and five laughing episodes to encourage you and to remind you of where confident joy 
is really found. So just call us today for your free copy of Joy in Tough Times by calling 1-800-663-2425 or by visiting backtothebible.ca.